You can turn to Matthew chapter 16 if you want a little shortcut here uh, to get to this morning's scripture. Last week we continued our discussion of the kingdom of God by looking more closely at the king himself, at the Lord Jesus. And last week we talked about the title that he most often used to refer to himself, which is the title Son of Man. And today I want to look at another title of Jesus, actually two of them, and we can kind of launch from the same place where we started last week, but we're going to end up somewhere different. We're going to end up in Matthew 16. But just like last week, we're going to do some kind of maybe deep theology for the first few minutes, and then at the last part we're going to bring it very much down to earth and apply it very specifically to our lives. So really kind of two parts to this again. But last week in John chapter 1, we saw Jesus in the process of calling two disciples to himself. And it was Philip and Nathaniel. And Nathaniel in particular had quite an interesting experience as Jesus informed him that before Philip even came to find him under this fig tree where he was sitting to tell him about Jesus, Jesus had already seen him there. And Nathaniel was like, whoa! And, and at that point, he was so impressed with Jesus that he immediately confesses and he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now those are obviously two different titles for Jesus. And in fact, Nathaniel's confession is a little bit unique with that second part because most people who are making that confession or saying that about Jesus don't use the words King of Israel. Usually you will see the word Christ or Messiah. Those are the same word, Christ and Messiah. Christ is more the Greek translation for the Hebrew word Messiah, which literally means the anointed one. But Messiah or Christ refers to a very special king of Israel, one who will deliver them from all of their oppressors and bring them into a new golden age that will last forever and ever. That's the Messiah. Okay, now the other term that you saw there, son of God, like its counterpart, son of man, is often misunderstood. Because it is more than just a reference to the divinity or the godhood of Jesus. In fact, that's not usually its primary meaning. And what I want to do is take you very quickly to a few other places in the Gospels. Uh, I'm not going to make you turn to these passages. I'll, I'll, I'll display them on the screen here, and I'll give you the references as we go along. But let me, let me give you these verses and see if maybe you notice a little bit of a pattern here. We're going to start right here with Nathaniel's confession. John 1.49 says, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John eleven twenty seven. 27, this is Jesus' friend Martha talking. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Matthew 26, 63, Jesus is on trial here for his life, and the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. John 20, 30 and 31 John closes his book, really, in some ways by saying this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Are you picking up on any kind of pattern here with regard to these two titles? They appear together an awful lot. Let's finally turn to our passage for today, Matthew chapter 16. Starting in verse 13, Jesus is traveling around with his disciples and he comes to uh, uh, the northern extremities of the promised land. As Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now I said we were going to talk about two titles of Jesus today, Son of God and Christ or Messiah, but you have, may, may already have guessed at this point that for our purposes this morning I'm going to be taking these two together. And that is because, as you can probably tell from the passages that we've read, to the people living at the time of Jesus, these two terms meant the same thing. They meant basically the same thing. And this included not just the Jews, but the Romans too. By the time of Jesus, around you know, 0 B.C., 0 A.D., around and after that, you have the beginnings of what is usually called the cult of the emperor in Roman times, meaning the Roman Caesar, the king, was actually worshipped as a kind of god. And in fact, Caesar Augustus, who had been the Caesar when Jesus was born, was actually called the Son of God. And as you can imagine, in this environment, referring to someone else, like Jesus, as the Son of God, could get you into some major trouble with Rome, since it wasn't just implying that Jesus has something divine about him, but when you said Jesus is the Son of God, you're saying that Jesus is the King, that he's the supreme King. And even among the people of Israel, there was a sense in which the king of Israel had always been thought of as a kind of a son of God. Not that he was divine in any sense, because the Hebrews would never have gone there. They believed in one God. But in the sense that the king had a very special relationship with God. For instance, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is talking through the prophet Nathan to David about David's son Solomon. And God says, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. In fact, it's, like, it's likely that at the coronation of each new king of Israel, Psalm number 2 was read, that it was the coronation psalm. And verse 7 would have been spoken over the king, where it says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. This day I have begotten you. And yes, we know that was obviously a prophecy about Jesus who would come later. But when those words were first written, they could also refer to the rightful king of Israel at that time, who was in some ways a son of God, but in other ways, certainly not a son of God. And of course, when Jesus finally came on the scene as the Messiah, that king of Israel, being referred to as the son of God, he was actually none other than God the Son. God the Son. Jesus was God in his own right, unlike those kings. Now, let me try to get a little bit of the sense of the importance of this to you by taking you for just a few minutes to Middle Earth, okay? Who knows what Middle Earth is? Raise your hand high. Okay, I want to see how, okay. Less than I thought. All right, we're going to geek out for a few minutes and go Lord of the Rings on you, okay? Because Middle Earth is the fictional setting for J.R.R. Tolkien's great fantasy trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And in this trilogy, Middle Earth is approaching an age in which the elves who have been pretty much running the place for, for, a, for a long time, are leaving, and they are leaving the leadership of Middle-earth to men, to human beings. And it's going to be what they call the age of men. The problem is that the greatest human kingdom, the chief human kingdom, the land of Gondor, which is down there in the southern part of your picture there, they don't have a king. And, and there was a king, and his name was Isildur, but unfortunately Isildur missed his chance to destroy the ring of power and was killed by orcs, as all of you know right? So ever since then, 
the kingdom of Gondor had been ruled over by a series of, of regents. Basically, these were men who were, they were caretakers. They were stand-ins for the king. In the hope that one day, the true heir to the kingdom, someone actually in the bloodline of Isildur, who could really be the king, would appear and take his rightful place on the throne. But unless that happens quickly, we got problems. There won't be a kingdom to come back to because the current caretaker, as you all know, is a really slimy and self-centered guy named Denethor, and the forces of darkness are about to invade and destroy humanity from the face of Middle-earth, which is a bad thing. Fortunately, just in time, one of Isildur's descendants, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, there he is, good-looking guy, shows up, realizes who he is, which is why the third and climactic book is called The Return of the King. Right, now, we're going to come back to Middle-earth very briefly later on, but we're going to stop geeking out for now. But something very similar happens in the history of the nation of Israel. If I were to ask you right now this question, who was the first king of Israel? What would you say? Okay, good, you'd say, most of you would say King Saul, because Saul was indeed the king, the first king crowned king of Israel by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Others of you would say, yeah, Saul technically was king, but you know, Saul was, he was, he was not a real great king. In fact, he was kind of a practice run. And so in some ways, Saul wasn't really the first king because he, he messed up and, and, and really the first king after God's own heart, the first king that mattered was King David because he was the first in, in the big lasting dynasty. And that's true. But the real truth is that, that neither of these two men was the first king of Israel. And I mean that. You see, when Israel first took possession of the promised land in those verses that, that Andrew was reading earlier from, from Joshua, Israel had no king. Or I should say they had no human king. God ruled Israel directly. Now, he did have some military heroes that he raised up to help them, the judges. He did use prophets and priests to relate to, to communicate to his people. But, but he himself, God, was their king. Israel was quite literally the kingdom of God, not just the kingdom that worshipped God, not just the kingdom that had something to do with God and was characterized by God. They were the kingdom of God. He was the king, literally. But then in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have an uprising. The people rebel against God's rule, and they demand of Samuel, the prophet, that he set up a human king over them. Give us a king like the other nations have, they said. A king that will go out and fight our battles for us. And God told Samuel, well, go ahead and do what they're telling you to do. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. And then, of course, we get Saul and David and so forth. And it isn't that God didn't know this was going to happen. He knew this was going to happen. In fact, there are verses way back in the book of Genesis explaining how the human line of kings of Israel are going to come out of the, the, the son of, of Jacob, whose name is Judah. We know that. But that doesn't mean it was the ideal plan A. In fact, you can make the case that all of the human kings from Saul and David all the way down were just like Denethor and the other caretakers in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. They, they had real authority. They were put in place by God, and their authority was legitimate. But they were, in some sense, regents. They were caretakers. Some of them were good kings, some of them were bad kings, but they were really caretakers, and they were ruling until a descendant of the original king which is who? God would come and claim the throne. And with the coming of Jesus, an amazing thing happens. 
not only does Jesus qualify to be the king of Israel based on his human ancestry from Judah through David, but he also qualifies by being a direct descendant, eternally begotten of the original king, who is God. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 1. He says, Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the son of God, the promised Messiah, is also God the son, the eternal king of the universe. He's God. And that means that the kingdom of God, get this, today, is no longer being ruled by a mere man as it was in the Old Testament. Did you know that? God is now ruling the kingdom of God directly in person. And one day Jesus, it says in Scripture, will rule all of the nations directly from Jerusalem on this earth. But for now, let me ask you this. What makes up the kingdom that God is now directly ruling? Who's in it? Raise your hand if you're a believer, okay? Yeah, it's you and me. Jesus now rules in our hearts directly. No regent, no human representative. God rules his people directly and personally by his indwelling Holy Spirit. Now hang on to that because we're going to put that truth together with something else at the end. For now, I want to ask you the same question that we asked last week. And this is a little one-minute review of last week. But last week, we found out that Jesus was the Son of Man. He was the incarnate one. And so I asked you, well, so then what kind of king is he? And the answer was, he's a king who identifies with us. He's a king who sympathizes with us. He's a king who, in fact, is seeking after us in a very personal way. And he's going from house to house and from room to room. Remember that? He's coming after us up close and personal. And he, and he calls us, once he finds us, he calls us to do the same thing in the lives of other people as we go house to house, room to room, seeking them and trying to introduce them to our king. That was last week. This week, let's ask the same question. So we know that our king is not just the son of man, but he's the son of God. He's Israel's promised Messiah. Then what kind of a king is he, and what does that mean for us? Did you forget about Matthew 16? Let's go back there. Matthew 16. Peter has just confessed in verse 16 what we've been discovering today, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So let's continue with verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let's stop there. Because Jesus just gave us the answer to our question. Soon as Peter gives this tremendous confession of who Jesus is, as soon as Jesus has now formally established with his disciples that they know he's the Messiah, and he's kind of trusting them with that secret, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God, immediately, Matthew says, from this point on, Jesus starts to put a painful and surprising twist on what it means 
that he's the Son of God and that he's the Messiah. What kind of a king is he? Here's the answer. He's a dying and rising king. He, that's who he is. He's a dying and rising king. And of course, this is quite shocking to Peter, and we won't go into all this, but Peter has a real problem with it. And let's face it, you'd have a problem with it too. It's shocking. It's shocking. Successful kings rule by maneuvering for power and making wise decisions and surrounding themselves with the right people and fielding strong armies. They don't rule by dying, especially kings who are God, right? But that's exactly what this one did. What kind of a king is he? He's a dying and rising king. And he had to be because he had to die for us to pay the penalty for our sins. And he had to rise for us to gain victory over death for us so that we could lead a new life. That was his only path to the throne. He had to go there. That was the only way he could receive his kingdom. It was by suffering and dying he had to give up everything. And so, here's the next question. Ready? What kind of people are we to be as followers of this king? What's the answer? We are to be a dying and rising people. We have to be. That's what we do. That's what Christians do. They die and they rise again. Now, there are a couple different ways that we do this. Toward the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, at the end of the return of the king, the rightful king, Aragorn, he discovers something. He discovers that because he's the legitimate king of Gondor, he actually has the authority to command the world's most powerful army. And it's the world's most powerful army because it can't be killed. And the reason the people in it can't be killed is because every man in this army is already dead. It's like a ghost army. And so this army can fight fearlessly and even recklessly, knowing that because they're dead already, the enemy cannot ultimately harm them. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you, you may not be a ghost or a zombie. Maybe you felt like it this morning when you got up. But you are similarly immune to death because you've already experienced it. You've already died with Christ. And you may indeed die physically one day, but that cannot keep you in the ground. Because when you put your trust in Christ, you died to sin, and sin has no power over you. You can't stay dead because sin has nothing to grab hold of you by. The sting of death is sin, and the curse of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That is what our fellow believers in Afghanistan are counting on today. That they cannot be defeated. Because like all Christians, they have this nasty habit of rising from the dead. Because in reality, they're dead already. As Colossians says, their lives are hidden with Christ and God, untouchable by the Taliban or anybody else. And these brothers and sisters need our prayer very much because for them, the day of evil has come, as it says in Ephesians. And they need faith, and they need courage, and they need wisdom, and they need help. But they already have something even greater. They are more than conquerors because of their dying and rising King, Jesus Christ. Amen. But that's only part of what it means to be people who 
die and rise again. There's another part of this that is there's much more of a day-to-day reality, even for those of us who do not find ourselves looking down the barrel of a gun. In Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says this about the Christian life. Listen to these words. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice there's another place where we see someone using those two titles, Son of God and Christ, together. But this verse just so happens to be about dying and gaining new life. Let me tell you a little bit about the context here. In Galatians, what's happening, and then we'll bring it down to where we are. In Galatians, what's happening is these Galatian Christians are trying to live by obeying a set of rules. They're trying to experience the life of Christ by conforming to a bunch of ceremonial religious duties. And Paul is saying, hey, I don't know about you Galatians, but I'm dead to that stuff. I died to that a long time ago. I died to the idea that I could somehow make God happy by obeying a bunch of rules or, or grow into Christian maturity by doing a bunch of religious things. That's not how I live. In fact, I don't really live at all. What? No, really. Jesus is actually living through me. And for that to happen, I have to die. In fact, he would later say, I have to die on a regular basis. I have to pretty much die every day, as a matter of fact. And that sounds very strange. But if you're a Christian who's made any progress at all in the Christian life, you already know this. You know it from experience. You know that discipleship is just another word for dying. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In big ways and small ways, you know that whenever you say yes to King Jesus and you obey him in some area of life where you wouldn't have obeyed him before, it means something inside of you has to die. And that something that dies is always something that has been important to you in some way. Let me give you some examples. Every time you truly forgive another person who has hurt you, really hurt you, and you really forgive, and you really release that person. You die to the power and the leverage and the control you could otherwise hope to wield over that person. And that can be a risky thing to do. On the other side of the coin, every time you admit to another person that you have failed them, sinned against them, or let them down, and you ask them for forgiveness, you are dying to the idea that you are the righteous and wonderful one who has it all together and you never make anybody mad. And that idea is a hard thing to kill sometimes because it's one of the things that has been propping up your life. Every time you pick up the telephone to talk to that hurting friend, when you know there are a million other things you could be getting done that day, you die a little bit. You're dying to the idea of setting your own schedule and running your own life. Every time you dare to talk to a non-Christian about Jesus, You are dying to your social and relationship safety zone where you never offend anyone and everybody always likes you. Every time you make a financial gift to another person or to the church or some ministry that helps others, when you know that money could have been spent on some other thing you needed or even stuck in your retirement account, you are dying to the illusion that you can somehow provide for your ultimate financial security by yourself. Every time you sense Jesus leading you to do something new for him and you say yes, 
you're dying to a life that's free of failure and risk. I could go on. But the, these things that have to die in order for us to obey our king are the things which have been artificially keeping our lives afloat as we protect what we often think of as our time, our money, our rights, and our reputation, but they're not ours at all. Now, where do we find the strength to do these things? Where do you find the strength to die? Where do you get the courage to, to die in these big and small ways? Well, the answer is you already have it. If you're a believer in Jesus, you already have it because the dying and rising king lives inside of you by his Holy Spirit. He is living through us as we surrender to his plan. Romans 6. 11 through 13. 10, let's start in verse 10. says this. It says, For the death he died, Jesus, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. That's Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. Now let's get to us, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not... Do not present your members as, uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. That's about dying and rising again like Jesus did. Remember what we said before. Jesus is now directly back on the throne of his kingdom, which means that he can be directly on the throne of your heart. You can be in his presence every minute of the day. You can talk to him at any time. And when the time comes that you have to die to something, he is the one who gives you the power to do it. But don't forget this. Jesus isn't just the dying king, right? He's the dying and rising king. So when you give up something for his sake, here's the cool thing. You don't just die a little death. You know what you do? You actually trade your life for his. You get his in return. He brings you new life, new purpose, new satisfaction, new desires, new and deeper relationships, a new and greater sense of real peace. When you die to something for Jesus' sake, he replaces the dead part that's left with life, with his life, with new life. What we call the Christ life. This morning... I do want to issue a more specific invitation to some people that are here because there's something that Jesus calls on every follower of his to do which demonstrates to the world this idea of dying and rising to new life in Christ. It's called water baptism. When you get baptized, you're saying a lot of things. When you get baptized in water, you're telling the world that you're a Jesus follower. You're committing publicly to follow him with the rest of your life. And you're also testifying to something he's done, to the saving work that he has done in your heart. But the reason that in baptism we actually lower you into the water all the way under and then we raise you back up again is that you are identifying with the dying and rising Son of God who is now the king of your life. That's what it's a picture of. And Jesus calls on every believer to do this. I will tell you, we will have a baptism service this fall. There's already one person who is confirmed in line for that, and there's a couple others we're talking to. But if you're interested, I want you to talk to me or talk to Wes or talk to Courtney 
Uh, Wes isn't here today because he's actually preaching at a, a Vietnamese church in Greensboro a little bit later on today. Um, but but if, um, if you are interested, I want, you, I want you to please talk to us. Talk to your elder. Talk to someone who can talk to me. But what we want to know, there is no more. Th- this, my favorite thing to do in the world as a pastor is to baptize people because I love celebrating that new life in Christ. And if, if you're interested in that, come and talk to one of us, and we'll let you know what the next step is. Okay, Let's pray.